sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Let me pray for us as we get started today. Father, I just I thank you, Lord, that we can come here to worship you, and I thank you that you accept our worship, Father, because of what Jesus has done fact that uh, our lives are not stained by sin any longer, but uh, our lives are defined by his righteousness and his righteousness alone. Um, I just thank you, Lord, for the honor of being able to proclaim your word, and I pray, Lord, for the things that uh, I say, the things that are valuable, Lord, may you take those and use those uh, to shape us and mold us, Lord, and I pray the things that, uh, that are unvaluable, Lord, may you just uh, let those fall at the wayside. Just thank you, Lord, for for these, your people, your servants. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless them, Lord, with your presence, bless them with your power. Um, I just thank you, Lord, for your word, that you are a God who has spoken and you continue to speak. So, Lord, now we just pray that you would speak today, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be with us, Lord. Uh, Just as the text we're going to see, Lord, we see that the Spirit is with us. Um, But we pray, Lord Jesus, that that your Spirit, Lord, would have a... no cause to bring judgment on us today. We pray that instead, Lord, you would equip us to serve you in faithfulness and in truth and in spirit. We love you so much, Lord. I just thank you for for today, Lord. And we just pray for all our our members who are elsewhere. Bless their times, Lord, and I pray that uh, wherever they are, Lord, just may they be refreshed in you. May they be equipped um, to serve you faithfully wherever they may find themselves today and this week. And we pray these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read uh, our passage today. Uh, you're welcome to read along. It's going to be in Acts 4, verse 32, going uh, to, uh, through pass, uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 11. So it starts off by saying, Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back from yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Well, this week, uh, Meg was in London training for her new job, and thankfully I survived the week alone with the kids. Uh, thankfully, uh, I don't think Matt Dexter's here, but thanks to him, I was able to get a TV installed, and that came uh, in handy this week as a babysitter. As I was in the background trying to write this sermon, the kids were watching uh, little cartoons and movies and stuff, so if I happen to mention Scooby-Doo by accident, just know that you can disregard that. Um, so as we look at chapter 4 today, uh, I want us to begin by examining three aspects of the early church uh, and how it was conducting itself. Uh, the first thing that we're going to look at is that they were of one heart and soul, they had everything in common, and there was not a needy person among them. And then in chapter 5, we're going to focus on three things, how God's wrath and jealousy are operative in the New Testament, the great fear that came upon the church, and then finally we're going to look at the lie of Ananias and Sapphira. So verse 32 begins by saying, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now I think that that, that is a really astounding comment, uh, especially if you're familiar with, with Christianity in general. Uh, I think you would recognize that that's not something that's often said about Christians, unfortunately. So I want us to camp here briefly and think about, about this because I think it's really important that the text mentions this about the early church. Uh, because at this point in Acts, there were already thousands of believers who were following, for, who were following Jesus. Um, uh, and at Pentecost, uh, back in chapter 2, 3,000 people in that day were added to the church. And since then, the apostles have continued to do their ministry, and no doubt more believers have been, have been added to their number. And so out of those thousands that are believing in Jesus, the text says the full number, all of them, were one heart and soul. So when the text says that they are of one heart and soul, what is, what is it getting at? Uh, well, I think the core of what it's saying is that there was unity among the believers. Uh, they, were, uh, they were united in their commitment to follow Jesus. Now, I think that we would be ignorant to say that there were not differences between the believers. Uh, maybe there may be doctrin- doctrinal differences or differences in what apostle was their favorite teacher of course, there must have been differences. After all, we are talking about, we're talking about humans, since humans are, 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 have so many differences amongst us. Um, but later in Acts, we will see that God, when God brings the Gentiles into the church, we will see how there are differences among the believers that are illustrated in, in what, they, what the convictions are that they have concerning how the Gentiles should relate to the Mosaic Law. Just to, That's one of the differences that we see illustrated in the text. And for uh, Jewish believers at that time, that is not an insignificant difference among them. So when Acts speaks of the unity of the early church, the, the fact that they possessed a oneness of heart and soul, it is a unity in the midst of differences. And those differences, though, are not swept aside under the rug as if they don't matter to them. Because in Acts 15, we see that the apostles and the elders, they hold a council where they address this Gentile question that I just mentioned. Some believers who belonged to the Pharisees, they thought it was necessary that the Gentiles be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law as they themselves were. So to settle this theological conviction, uh, the difference in this theological conviction about the role of the Mosaic law in the lives 
of Gentiles, this council discussed the differences held by the followers of Christ, and they came to a conclusion about it. They didn't just ignore the differences for the sake of forging an, in, uh, an inauthentic unity. They discussed and confronted their differences. So the question laid before us is, are we of one heart and soul? Are we unified? If we look at this question broadly, uh, examining all of Christendom, I, I think the tragic answer is uh, unequivocally, unequivocally no. We are not uh, uh, an incredibly uh, unified realm in Christianity. We're, we're incredibly divided and fractured in many ways. Uh, it, it's full of disunity because of doctrine or tradition or denominational differences, favored theologians, different emphases that we make, you name it. There's lots of differences between Christians. Um, and I think that in many ways that is a tragedy that the church, broadly speaking, cannot be said to be of one heart and soul anymore. I think it's appropriate to say that, that disunity is probably one of the greatest hindrances to the witness of the gospel within uh, Christendom. Uh, since within Christendom, again, there is great division, and church history is rife with turmoil and even hatred between Christians. Disunity across the board isn't necessarily a bad thing, though. Uh, at, at times, it is very warranted, like when uh, doctrinal or theological drift has become so perverse that the gospel is compromised, or the doctrine of God uh, is greatly corrupted. So in instances like these, uh, there is warrant for a vigorous rebuttal or separation of fellowship. But I think as we look at a lot of church history, and we think about the modern church, I'm inclined to think that a fair amount of the division and disunity we see is, is present as a result of sin and hard-heartedness. A refusal to the fact that we, a refusal to come together to listen, to discuss differences in the love and grace of the Holy Spirit. Because too often we, we sit in our theological camps uh, and simply dismiss others who differ from us. We do not remember that, that the faith we possess and the knowledge of God that we have been given, it, it's a gift that has been given to us. It's not that we sought that out on our own, we didn't develop that on our own, but Jesus has given that to us as a gift. Because, because we are imperfect people, there is no person or denomination, uh, ex denominational expression of Christianity that can claim that their expression of faith is perfect in God's sight. Rather, we, ne we need to pray and we hope that he leads us into his truth, all the while knowing unquestionably that, that there is some type of deformity in our beliefs that don't totally and truly reflect God's will or character. That's an inevitable thing because the fact that we are imperfect people, that we are sinners. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive uh, to correct those things. It doesn't, on the contrary, we absolutely need to be sold out in our pursuit of truth. However, our relationship with Jesus is not dependent upon us obtaining a perfect theology or the church that we're a part of having a perfect doctrinal statement or a perfect liturgy or a perfect governing structure. We know God is Savior and friend because he himself has taken the initiative to draw near to sinners like you and me. Our inclusion in, this, in his family is because of faith alone, by his righteousness alone. Not because we have climbed our way up to some perfect doctrinal understanding of who he is and his word. And it's not because uh, our ecclesiastical body has figured everything out on our behalf. Jesus is 
the sovereign king, who in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Romans is described as a potter who has power and authority to shape the hearts of men, who in Proverbs 21.1 is said to turn the king's heart wherever he wills. And in Matthew 16, Jesus says, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So considering those truths about who Jesus is, the power that he has over us, his church, I, I want to just ask this question. What if Jesus, desiring to test his people, has intentionally brought about the differing church denominations and models and theologies in order to see if his people will be committed to love and grace in the midst of differences? To see if we will be of one heart and soul, to see if we will gather around him and unite around him in the midst of our differences. Lest we forget, the difference between Jesus and us is far greater than the difference between Protestantism or Catholicism, or between Baptists or Methodists, or Calvinists or Arminians, or premillennialists and amillennialists. This hatred between Christian theological camps at times is, is something that does not reflect the love of Jesus. But in the midst of these battles over our differences, do we remember, have we forgotten the holy chasm that, that inherently separates us from Yahweh? A chasm that is only bridged because of Jesus. Do we remember the words of Paul in Romans 5 when he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And despite this holy chasm that inherently separates Jesus from mankind, he is still committed to loving us bestowing grace on us daily. The pursuit of truth, knowledge, and wisdom is absolutely foundational to the Christian life. We must pray for it. We must seek it without minimizing the centrality uh, of those things because, uh, because we are trusting the Father to lead us into truth. Just as Jesus prays in John 17, sanctify them in truth. But if our pursuit of truth compromises our ability to have a one heart and soul unification with others who are seeking Jesus yet differ from us in some way, then we are not pursuing truth as we ought to. Because the truth and knowledge of God's kingdom is one that sows grace, not division, among those who are earnestly seeking to know, honor, and follow Jesus. Being unified with other believers is not easy. Uh, especially when, when uh, it can be difficult to know who is truly following Jesus, who are truly Christians, who are his, and who are part of his church. That, that's not an easy question to ask. We have to be very discerning in that. Uh, we have to listen, to have patience. We need forgiveness. We have to have this commitment to Jesus and a love for his church to even begin to forge the foundational building blocks of unity. But it is possible with the power of the Spirit. So, so don't misunderstand me when I talk about the need for unity. I'm not painting this as something that's easy because it's really not easy. It's incredibly hard. But we, with the power of the Spirit being shaped and molded as Jesus is, should be able to pursue unity and come together in the midst of the differences that we see in Christians. Our flesh is predisposed to division and controversy. And indwelling sin will compel us to disunity. But the calling for every follower of Jesus is one is a one-heartedness 
that is an image of God's united Trinitarian love for the purpose of displaying his character in his people and for gospel proclamation. For as Jesus says in John 17, 20 to 23, I do not ask for them, my disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so, the, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as, uh, even as so the world may, uh, sorry, the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So again, this idea of oneness is is incredibly important, and Jesus is praying for this for us. So this is something that we need to take seriously as Christians. How do we how do we have unity together in the midst of our differences? And that's something that I love about FIBC, and that I'm so encouraged because even though this is uh, First International Baptist Church, many of you are don't come from that heritage. Yet still, I think that when I look at this body, I see great unity. I see that there is that we are united in our pursuit of Jesus. And we do we agree on everything? No, I mean I, I've heard it from you. There's so many differences that we have in the way. Maybe we wish things were done, but still, I'm so encouraged by this church because of the unity that I see in the midst of all of you. The fact that that you are pursuing after Jesus and that the differences don't tear us apart, but in fact, I think that in many ways, it draws us together and that Jesus looks upon that and loves the fact that we can be unified even though we have these great differences amongst us. So the second thing to take note of in verse 32, is that the text says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So if unity was at the root of the church's fellowship, this mutual and kind of communal partaking of each other's possessions was the fruit. It was the natural outworking of true unity. So this verse isn't castigating or condemning personal ownership, because Everything has to be in the care and possession of somebody. Somebody, If something exists, someone, it's in someone's possession, it's in somebody's care. Someone owns it. What it is doing, though, for us is redefining what Christian ownership is. It's showing us that the things that belong to us are not solely about meeting our personal needs or, or about blessing, say, just me. They're not about creating a little kingdom for you and your family in your apartment or your house. The things you own are gifts of God that should be used for his kingdom to help you and your Christian neighbors live out your callings as members of that imperishable kingdom. And and one of the distinct purposes of that kingdom is that there is a communal aspect to ownership. So, but but why is that? Well, why is the conviction of the early church, uh, why is this the conviction of the early church concerning the things that they own? Uh, why are we supposed to live like this? Why, why have they set this example for us? Well, it's not because they simply thought, oh, this is a great idea to live out love and kindness in this, 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 this community that we have. The, the reasons that, that they have for living this way are deeply biblical and originate in the God that they are worshiping. So the first reason for this conviction 
as the passage has indicated, is because they view themselves as united in Jesus. Therefore, what follows uh, that type of united unification, or this, this loving unification, is a shared life that rejects the claim that my belongings belong only to me, or they're solely to be used just for me. To, to claim a belonging as distinctly and only mine would actually be to deny the unity of the church, or your unity apart as, uh, as you're, you're partaking in the church. Because such a, such a sentiment is acutely out of step with the love that we as Christians are called to live by. And it's a rejection of the reality of Jesus' redemptive work that, that he says I have made us, that he says he has made us brothers and sisters. If we are in Jesus, then we are family. And families, at least those who are committed to following Jesus, aim to love and serve one another. Even when it hurts or, or when it stretches us further in sacrifice than we ever thought we wanted to go. The second reason for this conviction of the church is because God himself is a sharing God. And we being called to imitate him must hold loosely everything we have because it, it, may, because it is entrusted to our care, but it is not just for our benefit. The, the primary aspect of Yahweh's giving nature is that he actually shares himself with us, inviting us into Trinitarian fellowship to know him and have relationship with him. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Or in Romans 8, 15, Paul writes, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So we have been adopted by God, and because of that, we can cry out to him, Father. And he looks upon us with a greater love than we can possibly fathom. So he shares himself with us, something that he didn't have to do, but because of the love that he has for us and his desire to reveal his glory, he has shared himself with us. He also shares uh, his character with us so that to, to a degree, we become partakers in his glory and his beauty. In John 15, 11, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Or in Romans, where Paul labors to hammer home this idea that righteousness is not something we can possess on our own, but through the faith in Jesus, but through faith in Jesus, he has become our righteousness, and his righteousness is imputed to us, so that we, uh, an unrighteous people, can actually be said to be righteous. Also in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Why are these the fruits of the Spirit? It's because he is actually cultivating the image of God in us. He's sharing his character with us so that we become more and more like him. Thus, he's accomplishing, the Holy Spirit is accomplishing in us what Paul says is our purpose as Christians in Ephesians 5.1, that we would be imitators of God. Or in other words, we are, we are people uh, who, who are living as partakers in the communicable attributes of God. And when I say communicable attributes, uh, all I mean is that, that God communicates, say, his happiness or his love or his peace to us. And because we are made in his image, we are capable of expressing those. We are capable of living those out. 
whereas, where something like an incommunicable attribute would be like his transcendence. Uh, that is reserved for God alone. That's not something that, that he can share with us because we are creatures, we are not transcendent. Well, by definition, we are, we are not transcendent because we are creatures. So that's not something we can possess or imitate. Other things that he shares with us is he shares his eternal kingdom with us. Paul says that we are heirs of that kingdom and that we will inherit it. And all people, not just even his children, God gives common grace and gifts of all kinds. James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And in Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, The Father makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So the reason that we have for this communal sharing that we see in the early church should be part of the church because it's the natural outworking of faith that is seeking to be like Jesus. Because he, being the maker and possessor of all things, has shared with us everything he has. Even in even his holiness, or even in his holiness, sharing his redemptive righteousness with sinners so that we can know and love him. If that, if that doesn't propel you into a life of, of sharing and giving, then really there's nothing that's going to do that because that is the foundation and the basis for why the church is known as a gracious and giving body. Whatever we have was given to us by God and is God's. We have no right to act selfishly with our belongings because they are more properly said to be God's belongings that he has put into our hands. And he has said that they are to be used for the purposes of loving discipleship and faithful care of those around us and the building up of this family of faith, the church, God's people, the objects of his affection and blessing. And because the early church was committed to this type of radical theology of communal sharing and sacrificial giving of their possessions, uh, uh, Luke goes on to write in, uh, in verse 34 that there was not a needy person among the church. Because if there were needs, people were selling their own possessions to meet those needs. This doesn't set the precedence necessarily for us that if we own something valuable, we are obligated to sell it. Uh, Peter says as much when he speaks to Ananias in the next chapter. He says, while the property, while the property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So there's no hint of an obligation that we have to sell everything. Uh, though that may be the call for some of us in here. Because Jesus asked the rich young man in Mark 10 and Luke 8, he says, sell everything and follow me. So that, that may be a reality for some of us, but I'm not gonna, that's, that's not something that we think that every Christian has to do. It is no evil to own property and not sell it. And at times it can actually be wise to retain a property and not sell it uh, because it remains in your possession and the opportunity for future benefits uh, from it remain so that it can be a continued source of profit and giving rather than a one-time gift, possibly, after your sale. But again, this verse is highlighting that for those who are following Jesus, what you own is to be used to serve others, whether it remains in your possession or you sell it. So, so we need to be mindful concerning the things that, are, that we do own, thinking deeply about how those things should be used for God's kingdom. How, how can you serve the broader family of faith with the things that belong to you? Can your car be used 
uh, to help others who don't have one? Can your TV be used to host friends uh, when you watch a film and talk about its merits in relation to Jesus and to faith? Uh, can you spare a bed or couch? Uh, can that be used to host someone who needs a place to sleep? And if I don't mind just embarrassing the Borgans for a second, they were so gracious to us when we first came here. We stayed there for, I think it was a month and a half, uh, and they had two little children that were crying often, even after they went to sleep. Uh, but that's just, uh, I mean, I'm just so thankful for both of you that that was a great, great example of what we see here in Acts, how you were willing to share your house with a family that's not necessarily easy to share with because it's not as if we're quiet or just kept to ourselves in the basement because our kids were rowdy and they wanted to go outside and they wanted to go here and there. Um, but just that, that, them right there, that's an example, I think, of how we as a community are to live. Um, and, and, you know, these are questions we need to ask about how do we, how do we share our things? How do, we, how do we communally live as a sharing community? Now, how do we use our toys, our game consoles, our tents, sound systems, extra space, books, whatever it is that you own, how can we use those as tools for the kingdom? Uh, um, and while on here, I just, I just want to say that if you have a need, whether that need is financial or emotional or spiritual or relational, physical, whatever that need is, bring it to the church. The church is here to meet your needs. There's no reason to be ashamed of whatever your need is uh, because we all have needs. The question is, are we just willing to admit that to, to people around us? And I think that every church should make it their aim to say with the early church in Acts 4 that there is not a needy person among us. And we can do that, but it does require us having the humility to admit our needs and make those known. And it also requires the church responding in love to alleviate those needs and meeting them as best we can. So, moving on to chapter 5. What we've looked at so far in verses 32 to verses, uh, the verse 37 of chapter 4 have been setting the stage for what comes next in chapter 5. Uh, out of this culture that the early church had fostered of unity that expressed itself in the sharing of possessions and the meeting of needs, sin will inevitably creep into that. And that's what we see here in this story, which is one of the more probably memorable, memorable accounts in the New Testament because for many of us, it probably sounds like something that more rightly belongs in the Old Testament. But I think that if, if that's our thinking, that shows a bit of a flawed way that we are interpreting the New Testament. Yes, Jesus' ministry was geared towards displaying love and grace towards us and revealing the depths of those things for sinners. He went to the cross to obtain our redemption, thereby showing just how great his love for us was. But what exactly happened to Jesus on the cross. It's not just that he was willing to be slain by hateful people for our sake. There are countless stories in history of people who died for people they loved or good causes, or if you read about the history of the early church and how they were being persecuted, some of their stories seem just incredibly brutal, even more brutal than Jesus' death at times. Um, so what, is, what differentiates Jesus' death from those deaths? It's that in his death, he bore the weight of God's wrath in our stead. 
we deserved punishment for our crimes because that would be justice. But Jesus turned justice on its head, suffering punishment so that those who know him could inherit his righteousness, righteousness that warrants life and blessing rather than God's justice against our sin. So when we think about God's justice and his wrath, many stories in the Old Testament are probably what comes to mind. But the one story that ought to stand in the forefront of our mind when it comes to wrath, it ought to be the cross. Because that is where we get no better look at God's wrath and his justice. But unfortunately, I think for, for many people, our inclination is to take the New Testament and to use it so as to emphasize love and grace, the, God's love and grace, that is, at the expense of some of the other aspects of his character. Um, and that's one reason I think that this story is so important and why it's included in the book of Acts. Because we need to remember that Yahweh is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is always holy, and sin always has consequences. He is our Father, and a loving Father teaches and disciplines his children because he desires to see good take root in his children whom he loves. And that's, that's what we're seeing here in this passage. We see, we see that God is teaching us and disciplining people in the church. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 about the Israelites during the Exodus. Uh, it's very relevant for what happens here, uh, even though it, it isn't about Ananias and Sapphira. Paul says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So this story of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, it's, it's not a pleasant one, but we have it because we need this instruction. So we don't become complacent before Jesus, who Paul calls the destroyer, which I'm sure is a term that none of us or very few of, few of us have ever used about Jesus because that's just not how we tend to think about him. We tend to focus on his love and his grace. But the fact is, that's what Paul says of Jesus, that he was a destroyer. And Paul is comfortable using, uh, using that designation for Jesus because he knows that everything that is opposed to the glory of God, it will eventually be met with destruction because Jesus will not tolerate such things to endure unendingly. The only things that are in, eternally enduring are those that reflect his beauty and his glory. And this passage is a hard reminder of those things. Uh, and it's a hard reminder for us as the church uh, because it is showing us that God is a jealous God. And that can be a, a hard thing for us to accept. I, I mean, I've seen, I remember in, in, in college, I was doing a Bible study with people and we were talking about those things. I, don't, I wasn't leading it, but somebody actually threw their Bible across the room because, because of this, because they found it so uncomfortable. Um, but it is at the heart of everything God does. It is his supreme and singular passion to make known his glory and for him to be treasured as supremely valuable in our lives. You know, and it's typical, I think, in our vocabulary that the word jealousy, it has a negative connotation. But in Scripture, when jealousy is connected to the Lord, it is telling us something about his God-centeredness, his, his absolute and total commitment and devotion to himself. 
And, and you, the reason we find jealousy at times, why that is, is, is it has a negative connotation, is because among humans it is negative. But it, it's not fitting for a human to be jealous uh, in, most, in most cases. But it is absolutely befitting for the Lord because he is the epicenter of goodness and value. If he were not jealous for himself, uh, the, the lack of his jealousy would actually be uh, signaling a, de- a devaluation of his worth and majesty. But of course, he does value himself above all else and is therefore jealous for the exaltation of his name. Uh, a good definition for God's jealousy would be it is God's deep desire to maintain exclusive faithfulness and honor, especially among his covenant people. And that is precisely what we see in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They were not faithful to him, and they did not honor him. Rather, they were testing him, and out of jealousy for his name, God takes action to vindicate his holiness and display his power. And the result is their deaths, and from their deaths, fear falls upon the church. As a jealous God, his aim is to deepen our fear of him. Because in doing so, we will come to see him as he is and love him for his supremacy and his excellency. And verse 6 and 11, or and verse 6 and 11, they say that is, that, that's exactly what happened. A great fear came upon the whole church because of what God had done. Now when we speak about, about uh, people fearing God, there, there are two things that can mean. One, it can mean an actual cowering before him, which is something that we see in, say, Revelation 16, verses 5 and 6, where people are hiding themselves in caves and among the rocks, and they're calling the mountains to fall down upon them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And, and two, it, it can function as a near synonym to faith, and that's something especially we see in the Old Testament. Um, the, the best definition that I've heard for, for what the fear of the Lord means, is it, it means living and trusting dependence upon Yahweh. So, so in this passage, when it speaks of the church receiving a great fear, I think it's a combination of these two, most likely. Based on the nature of what happens here, uh, the public judgment uh, and the death of two people, I think it, it's obvious to say that there was probably a genuine fear that struck them uh, because of God's might and his holiness. That would be very terrifying to see uh, if it happened in our midst. Um, And I think that it would be terrifying because it's not as if other Christians that saw that were very different than Ananias or Sapphira. Everyone watching uh, probably knew that that they ultimately were worthy of a similar swift punishment. Um, And having so profoundly displayed that, no doubt incites real fear, I think, in the people watching but I think at the heart of the fear that is happening in this passage, what's happening is that they're receiving a deepening of reliance and trust in Jesus because they see how seriously Jesus takes worship and faith and how sin is a grave and dangerous intruder in our lives. Uh, there can be no other response uh, than to casting ourselves into the welcoming embrace of Jesus and trusting in him to provide grace and mercy Because without the gracious empowerment of the Holy Spirit, how will we ever escape our sin? We we simply won't. 
It has, its stranglehold on us is too powerful, too strong. And that's something I'm sure that you all have seen in your own lives. If God does not come and intervene, you will not escape your sin. And this, this passage is so significant for the church because it helps, it helps us grasp the, the, the need for our reliance and utter dependence upon Jesus for the grace to walk in faithfulness. Because who among them in the early church or who among us hasn't done what Ananias or Sapphira did? So before we close, uh, let's just look at what Ananias and Sapphira did do. They presented money publicly to the church, saying, this is what we got for the sale of our property, but then they kept back some of the earnings, deceiving everyone there. And Peter then sums it up in verses 3 and 4, saying, Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to men, but to God. And when reading this passage, I'm inclined to think that the interpretive and theological evidence points to the fact that Ananias and Sapphira were actual Christians, not unregenerate people playing at Christianity. And, and commentators and theologians, they differ on those things. I'm inclined to think that they actually were Christians, though. They knew Jesus. And so I think that, that what we see here is a dramatic failure of a Christian couple that is led astray because they are conquered by the enemy, and therefore uh, they resolve themselves to act, to act sinfully as they seek to get glory from other Christians. Uh, and what they do, according to Peter, is lie to the Holy Spirit. And, and I find this, this is kind of an interesting comment. Uh, lying to God who has total and complete knowledge, uh, from whom nothing is hidden. There's nothing that escapes his gaze. Because we can't, in a sense, lie to him because it's impossible to deceive him. Uh, even before a lie materializes in our minds, he's known it from eternity past. So, so on those terms... It, it's interesting, it's hard to speak rationally of lying to God because he sees right through us. We can't lie to him because our conscience is always exposed and bare before him. And, and if that's the case, then what Peter, uh, if that's the case, what is Peter saying when he says Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit? Uh, I think the key to understanding this is in Peter's comment to Ananias when he says, you have not lied to men. I think the assumption by Ananias and Sapphira was probably something like this. Well, we can sell our property and, and we will tell everyone we are giving away the money from the sale. But secretly, we'll keep some for ourselves. Uh, the church won't know that, though, so we can get the, boast of the, the best of both worlds. We'll, we'll keep some money for ourselves while appearing also very generous and charitable. Uh, but Ananias and Sapphira, so they knew... They were going to be lying to the church. But when the Holy Spirit reveals to Peter what Ananias is doing, Peter tells him, "Come on, hold on, Ananias. Recognize that you're not actually lying to me and the other apostles. What you're doing is you're lying to God about, about, about this transaction. And, and again, it's not because God could be deceived by a lie. The Holy Spirit is the one who revealed the lie to Peter. But, but Peter's comment, I think, is a course correction helping to reorient Ananias and us to see that when we sin, our sin is not primary, primarily targeted at, uh, nor does it culminate in, in our family or friends or church or our neighbors. When we lie, 
because we want to gain glory from men or, or when we're filled with unrighteous anger towards a friend uh, or, or when, when we harbor uh, unforgiveness towards somebody, those people, whomever they may be, they're not, actu- they're not the actual targets of our lie or anger or unforgiveness. Ultimately, God is the actual target of those things. So, so in your mind, you may be thinking that a person is the target of your deception, your anger, or your hatred, but I think the Holy Spirit is telling us no, that that's absolutely an incorrect way to view sin. Uh, of course, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they did lie to men. They're, they're, it is true that they told the church something that was untrue. But the point of Peter's comment uh, is that far more importantly, as regards the nature of sin, sin is chiefly aimed at God himself. So much so that Peter feels the freedom to say, yeah, I know we're talking and you're telling me a lie, but you're actually lying to God. So the, this is the true reality of sin that, that we often tend to dismiss, but, but we mustn't dismiss it because it's incredibly important. That's why it has been included in Acts for our sake. The Holy Spirit cares so much about this that he kills a, a couple publicly so that the church then and the church now will know that he is a jealous God who does not tolerate sin and he demands faithfulness from his people. So, so either we choose to abide in Jesus' ever-present grace, trusting in his mercy to help us persevere in obedience, even when we stumble in sin, or, or we run the risk of seeing God's wrath manifest itself against us as we challenge him and disregard him, instead pursuing other things that promise greatness uh, or contentment or pleasure or relief or satisfaction or enjoyment. But these things ultimately will only leave us hollow. So let us all be of one heart and soul that is committed to love and sacrifice, not seeking glory from one another, but glory that comes from God. Only in him will we find satisfaction that we are hungering for. Only in him will we, fi- will we find a refuge from sin. Only in him were you made, or only for him were you made, and only in him will your life's purpose be found. That supreme purpose, which is to live in, in faithful dependence upon him, drinking deeply of his glory and enjoying him him forever. So, so today, let us not forget this story of Ananias and, Sapphira's, uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, because their lives were sacrificed for our behalf. God, has, God did something. He brought judgment so that we can view the story and know how important it is to walk in faithfulness and to know his character. So let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Father, that uh, you are calling us to be a unified people. And I pray, Jesus, that, that you would build us up in a, one, in a oneness of heart and soul. I pray, Father, that we would be seeking to alleviate the need of those amongst us, Jesus. I pray that, that our lives would reflect your glory, your character. I pray, Jesus, that when we read about in Scripture that, that when you are a jealous God, I just pray, Father, that 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 would not turn us off or make us uncomfortable, but I pray, Jesus, that we would see why it is beautiful, that you are jealous for your glory, that you care about your holy name, and that you are calling us to, to care about it 
and value you above all else. So we pray, Father, deepen our love for you, deepen our trust in you. I just pray, Father, that we would be people who, who are students of your word, that you would speak to us, send your Holy Spirit, Lord. Everything we do here as a body, as a church, without your presence, Jesus, nothing will take place of any value. But we thank you that you have said you will be amongst us. You will be with your body. You will be with your people. So I just pray, Jesus, do that today and go with us from this place. Let us rejoice in you, praise you. May we fear you and live in trusting dependence upon you always because there is no one like you. Your goodness, your love, your grace, your mercy, your beauty, it is beyond all imagination. We thank you for these things, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.